Welcome to Invited In, a podcast connecting the global family of Samaritan's Purse. I'm your host, Christy Graham, and today I want to share a conversation that I had with one of our team members, Stephen. We, we spoke shortly after he returned from Ukraine. He was there with our medical staff at a secret emergency field hospital near the front lines. The area had just been liberated, and there were so many hurting people. It's February right now, which, as you know, now marks a year since the invasion. Uh, but this conflict has been going on long before that. There's so much complex history, and so we want to share this conversation with you now to keep Ukraine in your minds and give you a picture of what it's like and how you can pray specifically for our teams. It's so rare that we get to go into these restricted places, and Stephen did a fantastic job describing what he saw there. I felt like I was there, too. So, Stephen, you have taken four trips Mm -hmm. to this part of the world since the response. This has almost been a year-long response, which is hard to believe. You've been to Poland once, Ukraine three times. Let's just even start first, you know, going into a war zone. You've gone multiple times, Mm. closer and closer, it seems, each time. Yeah. And you told me earlier, you know, each response— New location, new team, but the same mission. That's right. So maybe just talk about this most recent trip. What are the similarities? What were the differences? And then we're going to dive into the specifics in a minute. Yeah, for sure. We started this response very under the radar. Um, In September, I think it was a Saturday morning, I got the call, hey, we're going to have a working call with our projects department. Uh, we need to be on it to hear what we're going to do. Um, but we couldn't publicize anything. You know, a lot of the time I work with media, and my first job is, oh, let's get a press release going. Let's figure out how we can get people involved who want to help. But this response, we knew from the get-go it was going to be different. Um, so we get on the call, and we establish the city that we're going to be working in, And it had been all over the news that week. The whole world really had seen the atrocities that had happened to this region, these people. Um, This city was occupied by enemy forces for more than like six, seven months, Mm. something very significant. And the world really was cut off from them. We didn't know how people were doing. We didn't know what needs were occurring in this area. There was no way to get there. Um, And then overnight... Um, over 1,500 miles of eastern Ukraine were liberated, and the world finally gained access to these people. And we knew there would be needs. We knew there was going to be hardship and and hard things to see. But I don't think anyone was expecting what we ended up finding. There were reports of torture. There were reports of mass graves where people, civilians, are being found in their town. And a lot of people stayed. Um, they didn't want to leave. They This was their home, and they knew— Um, Enemy forces were getting closer, but they didn't want to flee to safety. And being on the ground and talking to them through it this time, I had never heard stories from people who stayed. I've talked to dozens of people who fled, um, whether it was in our response in Lviv or visiting our church partners in central Ukraine. But this time, I was talking to people who never left their home because, no, this is where my mom is from. My grandmother's buried here. I'm not leaving. And they're survivors, and their stories were really— um, horrific to hear, but at the same time, just affirmed to me and our team and the ministry of Samaritan's Purse, these are the people we need to go and serve. So we launched a response. The world really didn't know about it. And we developed another emergency field hospital in eastern Ukraine in a recently liberated city. 
And what God did there was just amazing. He's been working throughout the past year through our ministry, but really what I saw him doing through our teams in this liberated area was unlike any response I've ever been on. Um, Very unique, very challenging as well. Uh, Let's just even break that down. An occupied city. I don't even know what that's like to be occupied, to be, you know, under control of someone else that, yeah, is not treating you properly. It sounds like you talked to a lot of people that were eating, you know, the food rations were awful. Yeah. uh, Either moldy or maggots or I guess first even walk us through the six, seven months that they were under occupation. Mm -hmm. You know, what did these people endure? Um, Sometimes when they were talking, it it didn't even sound like they were talking about their own life. You know, it was very robotic because I think they had to shut off um, emotions and yeah. and just live. Yeah. Um, so no no thriving, just surviving. So let's talk first occupation and the bondage that they were under. Yeah. What did they see? I mean, it's hard for me to even articulate. I don't think it's something you can grasp fully unless it's happened to you. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it would feel like to see soldiers come up to my house and say, "No, you're not Ukrainian anymore. That's not what this is," or to be hiding in my basement with, I'm thinking about my niece and nephew. It was really hard thinking about them when I was there. I have a three-year-old nephew, a one-year-old niece, and they're precious to our Mm -hmm. family. And these families were in basements with their children, with their elderly parents, um, praying for God to deliver them. Mm -hmm. Bombs were going off. They were really caught in the middle of something they had no part in, of of a brutal conflict that the world has been watching. And so how do you how do you relate to that? I can't. And so even when I sat down to talk to these survivors, um, it was really difficult to put myself in their shoes. I think, um, you know, our communications team here at Samaritan's Purse, all of us are heavy empathizers. That's how God's wired us to tell his story. Mm -hmm. And this story is so significant and so heartbreaking that you just can't get there. I've had plenty of pain in my own life. I know what that feels like, but I've never experienced what these families have. So I heard stories of people who were accused of um, being with the resistance of the invasion, who were kidnapped off the street and held in a basement that had flooded with water um, and thrown bread into the water, and that's what he had to eat. I've talked to people who um, you know, had small children with them who were drawing photos of people missing limbs and dead people in their, with their little crayons because that's what they were seeing, and they were trying to process this. Um, one lady I spoke to in particular, and I really feel like this summarizes the whole story is, you know, she had gallbladder stones. Mm. She had a medical condition that here in the West or in most other places you would get treated as soon as it was diagnosed. She was diagnosed right before the war started. And so there was nowhere for her to go. Mm. Her local hospital had been bombed to pieces. Landmines were scattered throughout her city strategically. So people would be too afraid to get out. And she sat there and suffered while taking care of her paralyzed husband, begging her own daughter and grandson to leave, like, please get out of here and go to safety, while she's battling this potentially life-threatening condition. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, she did come to our emergency field hospital and had surgery. I actually sat in on the surgery, uh, saw her gallbladder be removed, saw the stone. It's unbelievable that this woman survived. Like, Mm -hmm. I've never felt a physical pain quite like what she experienced. And so story after story, everyone has something similar to say. 
I heard accounts of we would hear these tanks and these large trucks driving right over us while we were in the basements, and we didn't know if they were going to come and knock on our door and ask us to step out. Um, some people were separated from their spouses. A lot of times the men were taken away from the family, and, and they wouldn't know what happened to them. Um, so it was very difficult um, to hear these stories day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that really struck me with this group of people we were serving is— how stoic they were. Um, You know, a lot of times when you hear these stories, you expect to hear a lot of emotion. You expect to hear um, a lot of, you know, just audible emotion in their voice. They're crying. And that's really not the case for a lot of these folks in eastern Ukraine that we're serving. They've been so hurt. They've been so um, damaged that a lot of them out of survival, I think, are detaching. So they would tell me, yeah, I got affected by a bomb and had shrapnel blown into the side of my head. Um, and I, you know, I'm here today. Thank you for your help. But almost speaking as if they're talking about someone else mm-hmm. um, because they're so detached and removed from their own trauma. And that was really something unique. I think that's a pain that really you only see in a war zone. You only see in a place with conflict. And so um, one of the biggest ministries I feel like our team was able to offer was being able to sit down with our patients and say, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. Let me hear about what you've been through. Share with me what happened when your city was occupied. Um, when you walk around the particular city that we served in, it looks like something out of a movie. Um, you would see post-apocalyptic images. So you're looking at schools that have been bombed. One of the saddest things I saw, we had a very narrow path that we could walk um, outside of our field hospital We had to be careful for landmines, and one building right beside us was a little elementary school, and one of our medical interpreters took me on a little walk around our path and started pointing out different buildings, and she pointed to this huge hole in this beautiful brick structure and said, you know, that was where I had second grade. Like, I remember that was my classroom, Um, and then right beside it was a playground. She said, I used to bring my kids here to play. The playground was vacant because— There's mulch and landscaping where you don't know if there's a mine underneath, and you can't take your kids to play in an environment like that. So really, it's the everyday life. It's just so disrupted. It's so foreign. It looks nothing the way it should. And I've said this before, Christy, talking to you in other interviews, it's things that human eyes were never meant to see. Like we were never meant to see such evil and destruction and and suffering. Um, But these people are not only seeing it, they've lived it and somehow have to keep moving forward. They have to keep parenting their children. They have to keep um, going to work and trying to provide an income for themselves. So it was, yeah, it's something I really have a hard time relating to, but am so privileged to have seen it on so many different levels, especially with this recent response. And as you mentioned, there's no, still no normalcy. Mm. So talk about now, having been liberated, now Samaritan's Purse is in there. Mm. Um, what glimmers of hope are these people seeing? Yeah. Um, and maybe what does it look like now? And what are they hopeful for moving forward? Yeah. Um, a lot of our response in eastern Ukraine, I feel like we had just the ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. This part of the world was so cut off. No one knew what was happening to these people. Electricity is out. The internet has strategically been torn off. People can't communicate outside of their city. And so even just us being there, hopefully, is a glimmer of hope of, wow, things are finally changing. These Americans, these foreigners, they're here serving and helping us. That means the world knows we're here, finally. Mm. 
the world knows what we've been through all these months. Um, and, you know, the liberation was such an emotional and dramatic experience for so many of these people. I remember I sat down and spoke to one patient after her surgery, and she was telling me a little bit about the day she knew the occupation had ended. Mm. Um, some Ukrainian soldiers had come to her door and asked to see her papers. And she had talked to a neighbor days before, and her neighbor said, I saw a flag, a Ukraine flag on our bridge. I think it's over. I mm. think we can come out. And she said, don't make fun of me. Don't tease me. Mm. Like, that's not funny to joke about because she just couldn't believe that things would ever be the way they used to, that freedom would one day again mm -hmm. return to her city. And so when these soldiers came and said, you know, can we see your papers? The occupation's over. We want to make sure it's safe for everyone here. We want to make sure you actually mm -hmm. belong here. Um, she said it was very emotionally overwhelming because she just felt like, wow, it really is over. Um, many people that I spoke to at our emergency field hospital used a very specific phrase, which I know is so um, of God. They would say, you are like light, or you are a light to us. And it was such an amazing metaphor, but it was also very literal. The whole city, for the most part, had no power. So you could stand on the roof of our emergency field hospital, and you might as well be in the woods in North Carolina here, because you could see nothing except the stars above your head. And then you look over the skyline, and you would see active bombs and flashes of light in the distance because of how close we were to the front lines. But you look around, and it's complete darkness. Um, I remember the day I arrived to the city, it took me five days to get there. Um, and I've been all over the world with Samaritan's Purse. It's never taken me five days to get anywhere. Um, but after a five-day trip, I finally arrived to this city. And when we first pulled up, I thought my driver like, he must have taken us to the wrong place. That's not good. We're in eastern Ukraine, but this is an abandoned building. Like, there's no way there's a hospital in here. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I walked in was because I saw this very small banner that had our logo very discreetly with some Ukrainian writing. And you open the door, and there's light everywhere. We were the only building that had electricity. We had our own generators operating the hospital. And you walk in, and there's hustle and bustle. There's conversation. There's people visiting with doctors. You see more people in this building than you would driving through the entire city because people are still so shell-shocked. They're staying indoors. They're staying home. Um, all of our windows of the hospital were boarded because if someone is looking into the city and they see one building with lights on, that's pretty suspicious. And so we had to strategically board up all of our windows to make sure that light wasn't getting out. And so it really was this hidden oasis in a sea of just destruction and chaos and um, destroyed buildings. And so people would say, you're like light. Like, this is a lighthouse for us, a beacon of light. Um, and that really summarized the whole response for me in eastern Ukraine. I feel like that's what we were sent there to be, not only physically, like we were providing surgeries. We treated over 3,500 patients in two months at this hospital. Um, and obviously, these people were in desperate need of medical care. Their hospital had been all but destroyed. Um, but we were there to minister to them, to hear them out hear about their life in occupied Ukraine, um, and to give them hope that you can move forward. Like this doesn't have to define you or your city or what God has next for you all. So really just, yeah, being a light. I think that was our goal with this response. And I think we, through God's favor, achieved that. Um, man, can't even imagine. I didn't even think about that, having to yeah. board things up. So you're, you're basically feel like you're underground once you get in there. Definitely. Um, Okay, so 
you mentioned it took five days to get there. This is a very, you know, it's hard to get to. Mm -hmm. And to go, the entire DART team had to give over their cell phones. They yep. didn't bring anything with them. So you you mentioned you were, you know, Jesus, and, and there's a verse, you know, the light shines in the darkness. You know, the darkness cannot overcome it, and that is Jesus, and that is why we go yeah. to bring the hope of the gospel because he is a light in a dark world. Um, and so you guys were a physical, uh, tangible representation of that, and that's why we go, mm -hmm. to meet physical needs, to share the spiritual need. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you guys couldn't bring cell phones. You couldn't bring iPads, personal, anything. To, to you were cut off as well. So you, although we had you hadn't been through the trauma that they'd been through, you were in a sense giving up those rights, get, laying down uh, luxuries to come to them. And, mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, I think that did help them feel seen, mm -hmm. uh, feel heard, feel validated. Because um, I can't imagine being cut off for six months like they were. Yeah. So. Talk to me about even what that was like. Um, mm -hmm. What what was that? I mean, what is it like to hand over everything, be completely cut off, not be able to communicate with your family and your loved ones, and be in harm's way? What did God teach you? What did God teach the team? What was it like to be completely removed from the outside world? Yeah. I mean, like I shared, we, we couldn't say anything about this response from— like a, an organizational perspective, but we sent over 190 staff to this specific hospital, mm. um, and they are part of the larger 650-plus staff mm. we have sent to Ukraine since the war first broke out last February. Um, and whenever you send groups of people like this, large amounts of people, it's really easy to be noticed. And we were not in a place that we wanted to be noticed. We wanted to be really hidden and discreet and wise with how we treated our patients and also cared for the safety of our teams, our staff. So one of the rules for this response that was really unique, I've never been in a situation like this. We, halfway through our commute um, to get to eastern Ukraine, to the city, I took literal planes, trains, and automobiles. Mm -hmm. And I arrived about halfway through in Ukraine. I was in central Ukraine. We have staff there, and I had to turn over my computer, uh, my personal cell phone, my work cell phone, um, any device that had a Bluetooth capability on it. The only thing I went into eastern Ukraine with were my clothes, um, an audio recorder for our podcast, um, a little tiny digital camera that security had to review and disable certain features on before I could take it, and pen and paper. So it was very unique. I've not been without a cell phone since I was 12 years old for more than a couple of days. And this time I went for this whole response that I was there, no phone, no way to communicate outside. Um, and the reason for that is we wanted to keep our footprint small. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to be able to be seen however that could happen. Um, if you see a city that's completely blacked out, but there's one central place with you know, 100-plus cell phones at a time, computers going, you're going to be potentially targeted. So staff really had to sacrifice and give up their normal comforts, like you said. We couldn't call our family and say, hey, by the way, I've made it. I'm safe. I'm doing well. Um, if news were to break out that we weren't aware of um, on national television and our families would see, wow, it was a really big day of bombing in Ukraine, we had no way to assure our loved ones, we're fine, we're safe, it wasn't mm -hmm. near us. And really, we were in a vacuum. We had very limited information on what was happening outside. I remember being in Ukraine and um, a rocket had hit outside of Ukraine. And that's all we knew. So our team, our leadership were able to tell us that much. But the investigation into what happened was ongoing. 
And we were sitting there going, is this going to be World War III? And we're <laughs> over here in Ukraine. Our loved ones don't know where we are. Is this going to be World War III? Um, and then days later, after the world already had learned, we found out it was just an accident that happened and things were fine. Um, but that was really normal. Um, there was a wall where they would post, you know, the latest football, Saturday football scores, where we would have um, cartoons from that week's Saturday paper um, online that someone had printed out for us. There were just like general updates like that to keep morale high. But really, we had to depend on ourselves and each other. Um, I read a book in three days with mm-hmm. a headlamp down in the bunker at the end of my day. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read a book in three days in years. I've had time. Mm-hmm. Usually when I'm on a deployment, I'm sending hundreds of emails a day. I'm on the phone constantly conducting interviews when I can. This time I had no ability to do any of that except sit down and record and talk to people. Um, and it was such a gift. I think, yes, a huge sacrifice, but our team, their attitudes were so amazing. Mm-hmm. They really understood that I'm giving up something very small to help people here who have given up and lost so much more mm-hmm. than just you know access to my family for a month. Um, we did have one really cool avenue to talk to people back home uh, that I thought was really unique. Our member care department here at Samaritan's Purse, their job is really to ensure that staff are um, being cared for emotionally, spiritually, from a psychosocial perspective. The places that we work are really hard to be. Um, and so every day, we could type an email in a Word document on this standard, highly encrypted computer, and one member care person had an encrypted email that they were then able to review to make sure no sensitive information was shared, copy-paste, and send it to our loved ones back home. And so we had people doing that Hmm. every single day, and every morning, that same member care staff member would walk around with a stack full of papers from the emails they had received back, and they would hand it out as like our daily mail call. Um, and that was such an encouragement. I mean, the morale at breakfast when they were handing out the letters just went through the roof. You'd mm-hmm. hear like, oh, like so-and-so's birthday party went really well back home, and I can't wait to go home and see them. And um, I remember my first evening there, I showed up. Because it took me so long to get there, I already had a letter waiting. And <laughs> that was just really mm-hmm. trippy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend here in Boone had reached out and said, hey, I'm praying for you. This is going to be a really important response. Just know that you're being prayed for you and the team. So... Very unique, um, very challenging to be cut off from the rest of the world, but at the same time, very necessary. We Mm -hmm. had to keep our patients safe. We had to keep our staff safe. And I've just been so proud of our DART members who willingly knew that. Um, Usually, when you go on a response, you'll you'll take photos on your iPhone. You'll, um, you know, meet people like interpreters or patients that you really bond with, and you want to exchange phone numbers and, and be able to communicate with them later. And we really had no creative outlet on this response. And so I remember we had one um, physician's assistant. I talked to her my first night there, and she had actually written a poem mm-hmm. about the emergency field hospital because she said, you know, I don't have a camera, and I don't want to forget what God is doing here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to create a picture with words. Mm-hmm. And so our emergency field hospital was unique in the sense that it took place across four levels of this building. Usually it's maybe in like an open parking lot. Everything is visible. But for this hospital, we had a bunker where we stayed underneath the ground and slept every night. Our first floor, which had our triage, our operating room, our emergency room, um, and like intensive care for patients coming out of surgery. 
And then we had another level, which had a male and a female ward for patients who had to stay longer, um, as well as a COVID tent. In case any patients were to come through mm. with COVID, they would have a separate isolated place that they could still receive treatment without getting others sick. Um, and then also on the top floor is where we had our devotions. It's where we ate our meals together as a staff. Um, it's where we had our base supplies. So you can go and get a snack if you need it or um, just take some time to sit and read in between your shift. So it was a really unique hospital. And it took 83 steps to get from the bunker to the mm. common room. And so this the physician's assistant, she wrote this amazing poem just about what it was like serving in this city. And it's called 83 Steps. And it was really beautiful. I really loved it. And we had we saw creative things like that pop up all the time. We mm-hmm. didn't have Instagram to scroll on and waste our time, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that poem is amazing. It helps you just sit and think about what you see. Can you even you gave us a tour of where you lived and what the base is like? But even just looking around, I know she mentioned you know windows that were the glass was knocked out so the curtains would fly through. You know these empty windows. Yeah, I I had a really unique opportunity one day. Security was tight. Um, Mm -hmm. We had an amazing security manager, though, who was communicating with our global team here in Boone Mm -hmm. and every day staying very much aware of the conflict and what's happening. However, one of his weekly responsibilities was he had to do a drive around the city. Um, He would go with one driver, and usually that was it, to keep it as minimal as possible, mm. and would drive around to see, okay, these checkpoints have moved, or okay, this here's a group of soldiers that I've actually not seen before. That's good to know. This is where they're camped out at this school. And so one day when I was there, he said, you know, it's really rare I could offer this to you, but would you want to join us for this ride-along? Um, and so I sat in the back seat and just took it in, mm. and I talked with our security manager while we drove around. And the the scenes, I mean, we had been to central Ukraine, western Ukraine. It's it's all horrific when a city is occupied or damaged in the war. But this place had been so looted, had been so decimated that it's amazing that there's still people even living there today. It's like I don't know where they go. So we were driving around. I remember seeing this one apartment building. It had literally been split in half because of the heavy shelling that had mm. happened. And this was a residential area. There was nothing there but families living, um, schools. Uh, we drove by the hospital in the local city, the local hospital for the city. And the OR, the ICU, the emergency room had all been completely bombed. And more of the you know less important side of the hospital hadn't even been touched, which, of course, we look at and we're like, that's, that's not an accident. That mm-hmm. was very intentional. People who needed assistance could no longer get it. And even when you approach the hospital, there are now signs with a skull and crossbones that let you know, do not approach. Like, don't even try to get help Mm. here. Because if you do, it's a really good chance you're going to step on a landmine. And that was really horrific to see a hospital that people maybe who need help would otherwise think, well, let me see if there's a doctor here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's landmines that were strategically laid all around this place. Um, like I said, at night, it was pitch black. There was no electricity. Um, I was there in November. It was gray. It was wet. Snow um, started to fall when I was there, and people don't have any way to stay warm. There's no way to cook your food. There's no way to um, insulate your home after it's been bombed. And so our Samaritan's Purse country office in Ukraine is also actively working in this area, providing tarp, mm. providing wooden stoves. Um, when we have a winterization project as the months are getting colder. People are able to receive extra winter clothing, 
things that they need just to make it, just to make it till spring. Um, and so that was really hard to see. Sometimes people would come into our hospital. Everyone we saw was in need medically. However, some people you were there and just being in a warm place with mm-hmm. electricity and being able to get off their feet and sit down and not worry about the wind coming through, you could tell that was just as much medicine for them as anything else we could provide. And so our hospital became a spot for that as well. Um, but it was really sad. I mean, strategically, the power grid in Ukraine is attacked every week because they know it's cold, it's snowing, and people need electricity to get through it, and they're knocking the power out everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the city that we worked in, we were one of the only places that had any form of electricity at all through our generators. Mm. Yeah. Is horrible. I can't even imagine. It's I mean, horrible. here in Boone, you know, a couple of days before Christmas, we had the the single digits. You know, it was, I mean, one point negative, yeah. which is rare here. I mean, it's cold, but sure. it's usually not that cold. And, yeah, we lost power for almost two, two hours. And we just sat there saying, could you imagine this going on for months no way. and never getting warm? Yeah. I mean, we had hope on the horizon. But, yeah. um, okay, so spiritually, let's you've kind of painted a picture physically, what's happening. Spiritually, what are you seeing? Um, is there church presence there? And then what is Smearn's Purse? How have they been able to encourage mm-hmm. um, and maybe seeds planted, gospel? What what kind of um, gospel work did you see on this trip? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so uh, typical for us to say, but we say it because we mean it. We don't just go— to provide physically, Mm -hmm. but we go to meet spiritual needs. And the city that I was in, just like anywhere that you go, the spiritual need was so severe. Um, And we saw people trying to cope with what they'd been through and what they'd Mm -hmm. seen Mm -hmm. in some of the worst ways ever. And even if they had survived this occupation, had survived this bloodshed, um, the enemy, Satan, was still very much after their soul. One man that I got to speak to, he was close to my age, And he shared with me that his mom died during the occupation, Um, but she didn't die from a shrapnel wound. She didn't die from um, anything to do with the war. Mm -hmm. She died because she couldn't cope with what she was seeing, Mm -hmm. and essentially she drank herself to death. Mm -hmm. Um, She started drinking really heavily during the occupation, and eventually her body just gave out. She had a heart attack, and there was nowhere really for her to be treated, and so she just died. Mm -hmm. So he came home from work and had lost his mother from this war, um, just maybe in a very indirect way Mm -hmm. that you don't think about. So the spiritual needs are everywhere, um, the same way they are in my own life, in the lives of everyone that we work with and serve. And so we were there and sharing the gospel at any chance that we got. It's really hard to to view it this way, but something that's brought me comfort and peace is, you know, tragedy oftentimes makes us rethink the way we look at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if things are going pretty smoothly and decent, I'm not really all that worried about God or thinking about my future or eternity. Um, but it's when your life is really shell-shocked and rocked that you start asking those really important questions of, who am I? Um, who is God? And how does that work together? And so our team, the Lord sends us to these places who are right there in the middle of that battle of, wow, I've lost everything. My mom has died. My spouse has died. I don't know where my brother is. These people are on the brink of of disaster. And we go and we minister to them and we tell them and share with them the truth of the gospel. Um, So it's a really unique platform that we have. We sit there and we listen to people's stories and what they've been through. 
and we tell them, you know, we have something that we can share with you if you'd like. Oftentimes they ask us for it. They'll come in and say, you're like gold. You're a light. Um, what is it about you that's so different? You have this joy and this peace that I've never known. And that really opens the door for us to say, it's not us. Like Christ died for us. Um, we were lost and broken um, on a way to hell as as anyone else would be. Um, but because of the gospel, like we're empowered to be here and to serve you in your time of need. Mm. Um, and we saw people saved on this response. We saw many people come to know Christ as their Savior. Um, we had one man, when I saw him, it was really difficult for me to maintain my composure uh, and not have a shocked face. Um, he looked like someone who had survived a concentration camp. Um, and when I was hearing his story, I learned that he uh, had hurt his hip at the beginning of the war. He was my mom's age. He was 61. Um, and because there was nowhere to go and because the occupation had begun, his hip got worse and worse. Mm. And basically for eight months, he crawled around his apartment by himself with his wife who couldn't – she was elderly and couldn't help him either um, and was crippled and handicapped. And when he was found, he was lying in his own waist um, – emaciated. He had lost half his body weight. He weighed 90 pounds when mm. he came to our emergency field hospital. Uh, he was able to receive surgery, um, physical therapy for his leg. He was able to get his first haircut in nearly a year. Actually, our surgeon who worked on his hip was also the one who gave him his first haircut in mm. a really long time. Um, every day, our staff would go and visit him because he was with us for a long time. We were really trying to help him gain weight and to recover from his uh, surgery. And we would go and play music for him. He would read the Bible while waiting in our in our patient ward. Um, and before he left, he was speaking with one of our member care staff again. Um, and that man was able to lead him to the Lord. Hmm. And so he became a believer. And when he left, he was tearful in a way that was te- like very different than the tears you usually see in eastern Ukraine. He was joyful. He was fist bumping mm-hmm. our staff on his mm-hmm. way out. He had gained some weight back. He was a lot more mobile. Hmm. Um able to sit up on his own for the first time. And that's why we go. Honestly, if all 190 DART staff had gone to eastern Ukraine, we had set up that huge hospital, and that one man was the only person we were able to help and Mm -hmm. able to lead to Christ, it would have all been worth it. And we should have spent every dime to do it, every resource to go and do it. That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the spiritual need, it's there. But at the same time, that's why we're there. Mm-hmm. God has sent us to help meet that spiritual need. And I'm so thankful because we're able to do that. Mm. Um, and we were able to do that in eastern Ukraine. Mm. It's like a mic drop. I don't even know what to say after that. Um, I just want to read real quick. I yeah. just read, as you were talking, I read Psalm 73 today. And I, you know, David, all throughout Psalms, I mean, he has so many anguishing cry out to the Lord. You know, mm. my bones are, you know, I'm being threatened of my life, you know, he knows how these people feel. Yeah. Like they, he was threatened, he was, you know, oppressed and cried himself to sleep many nights. Um, but the hope he would come land on, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, I just ache hearing these stories thinking, what if you didn't have hope? What if you didn't have the Lord? And earth was the greatest thing for you, you know, because for us, this is not the best, mm-hmm. you know, we are, we are home, we are heaven or homesick for heaven. Uh, but I just thought, I read Psalm 73 today, you know, and just when David said, you know, my heart was embittered, I was pierced from within, I was senseless and, you know, um, but he said, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You you have taken hold of my right hand and your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And I love, you know, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
Uh, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. Um, And there's many, many uh, other Psalms that say that, you know, the presence of the Lord is my joy. And I think that's what I heard from our staff, you know, time and time again. They would say, you know, I'm watching bombs. I'm, I'm having to go take shelter. I'm cut off from my family, yet I've never had more peace. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's like, and I just love that. The nearness of God is my good. You know, mm-hmm. that is where we find our joy in our— and we say that here in the West. We we say that we we feel that way, but I don't know. I've mm-hmm. never been stripped of it. I've never um, sat with people that literally were dying. Um, so just how can—when we land— I guess this is kind of a prayer request for our teams that are going to continue to be there because mm. we are we are going to be there until we're not needed anymore. Yeah, uh, we have a country office. We are we are there as long as we can be safely. Um, so, Stephen, what did God teach you? Uh, how did you see His presence um, and and have peace um, despite death around you? Yeah. Um, and then, how can we be praying for our teams to continue? to meet with God and have that peace and provision. Not not physical safety, but that spiritual safety. Yeah. A verse, I mean, that I've thought about so many times that um, really I thought about a lot on this response as well. It says, but don't you know the goodness of the Lord draws men to repentance? Mm-hmm. Um, I was so convicted when I was in eastern Ukraine with this team. Our team was phenomenal. I mean, when I say it was just an anointed group of people who were called to go and serve this group of people in need, that's exactly what it was. Um, I showed up. My trip was really delayed. Um, it was. A, it took five days to get to this mm-hmm. place. It's cold. You have no technology. Your comforts are stripped. We had to ration water at one point. I think I went four or five days without a shower. I mean, it's, it's a difficult place to be. And laying in a bunker hearing sirens and bombs, I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about the things that tripped me up here in the States. I was thinking about the the social event I missed out on that I should have been at to, you know, please someone or um, thinking about the first thing I was going to do with my time off when I got back. And I was so convicted because I would look into the eyes of our patients who had survived so much trauma, so much heartbreak, who had lost everything they knew, and we're living in this surreal state of what is life? What, who is God? Who am I? And the Lord really used that to mm-hmm. straighten me up quickly. Um, but at the same time, I came home, and those battles are still here. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a friend one time share with me something that's always stuck with me. I went to Bosnia on a trip when I was in college and met with war survivors there. I met with war survivors in Bosnia before, a similar region of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I came back guilt-ridden. I thought, you know, my life is so easy, mm-hmm. and I'm still such a whiner, such mm-hmm. a complainer. And he says, you know, Stephen, like if you were to switch places with that 20-something-year-old Bosnian guy, he would have the same struggles. Satan Satan would attack him the same way he does mm-hmm. you here in the States, and you would be in the same kind of need that he is there in Ukraine or Bosnia or wherever we're responding. And that has stuck with me, mm-hmm. to let go of that guilt— but to take the blessing and the good things that God has given us and equipped us with, thank Him for it. If you're living in sin, repent of it. If you're struggling to repent of it, tell the Lord that. Let Him know, I don't want to repent. I'm broken and in need, but give that to Him and watch what He'll do. Watch how He'll use your life. Watch how He'll use you to minister to other people. When I was leaving the hospital, 
people would come up and just say, oh, how much it meant for them to be able to share their story. And and I felt like, you know, I, I barely offered you anything. I'm not a surgeon. Mm-hmm. I didn't um, perform some kind of operation on you that's going to change your life. I just sat with you for an hour and heard your story. But at the same time, I walked away going, this is what God has saved me for. Mm-hmm. And I know that he's doing the same for these people. Um, so I would just say to anyone listening who thinks, you know, well, I don't really have it that bad, and I kind of maybe feel guilt about that to not, and take the blessings and the gifts that you've been given to use it. Maybe God is asking you to go to eastern Ukraine and to minister to these people who are without. Um, Or maybe there's idols in your life. Maybe your phone is God in your life right now, and you're on it every single day, all day. Give it up. You know, lay it to the side. Maybe you should really take some radical changes, practical changes in your life and watch how he'll use that new empty space that you give him and fill your life to be used for him. Um, That's really what this response felt like. We had nothing but each other to talk to in our free time, to share stories, our patients and our interpreters. We were able to sit in fellowship with. And I left expecting to be exhausted, more refreshed than I've been in a really, really long time. And so that's kind of the key takeaway for me. I learned a lot on that response that I think we could all use here, even just in our day-to-day lives. I loved sitting down with Stephen as the trip was so fresh on his mind and in his heart. Uh, I think that he was able to convey uh, so effortlessly exactly what he'd seen and allow us to feel like we were there amidst our teams. Uh, They're so dedicated, and I'm thankful that they're willing to risk their lives to serve in dangerous places. Please continue praying for our teams as they're constantly serving. Hearing Stephen talk allowed us to pray more specifically. And as he talked about uh, the people that are living in the red zone, uh, it just made me think of the depth of their heart, heartache and pain and all that they've endured and seen. Uh, I thought of many of David's psalms, but Psalm 31 came to my mind. It's filled with him crying out to God with his difficult circumstances. He says in verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration, my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my bones are wasting away. Um, And I pray that despite uh, difficult circumstances, uh, people truly are wasting away. I hope and pray that despite their difficult and painful circumstances— that they'll be able to find hope like David in the Lord. Uh, He goes on to say in in verse 14 through 16, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. And that that verse, make your face shine upon your servant, it just makes me think of our DART members. Uh, They're truly radiating Christ, and their faces are shining because of their love and their hope in Jesus. Uh, So continue to pray for our DART members and our church partners that are serving in this devastating time and sharing the love of Christ. Um, And if you want to hear more, I encourage you to go to our podcast at On the Ground with Samaritan's Purse. We released a two-part mini-series about the field hospital and our response in eastern Ukraine. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you for your prayers.